The more I learned about transition, the more it just kind of personally resonated with me. To me, I finally found the source of my distress and how to resolve it. And so I became very determined to do so. And it was the only option that I really had been given. Welcome to the Edify podcast, where our guests share practical wisdom on living our faith in public. I'm Mary Fiorito. Thank you for joining us today. We're beginning to see the increasing visibility of detransitioners, and Chloe Cole is one of the most powerful voices against transitioning children. She herself detransitioned after undergoing years of puberty blockers and irreversible double mastectomy at the age of 15. Chloe, welcome. It's great to have you here on the Edify podcast. Thank you for having me. There's a lot to your story, but let's start with the, the background. When did you begin to experience gender dysphoria? When did you start to transition? And then what kind of surgeries and treatments did you have during that time? I was about 12 and a half when I started experiencing gender dysphoria and when I decided to start transitioning because of this. And for me, beginning social transition meant that I was changing the way that I presented myself. Um, I changed the way that I cut my hair. I changed uh, the way that I dressed. I bought more clothing from like the boys section and I changed my name as well and tried to sort of mimic the, the mannerisms of my male peers and older brothers and such. And uh, I started coming out to some people from school, some people that I was friends with online and then eventually um, members of my family. And uh, the response, the response between my peers and family was pretty different. Um, I mostly attribute that to the fact that I was in middle school and people between the ages of like 11 to 14 are just not very nice people. <laughs> so I got, I, I got bullied a little bit for transitioning initially at school, but my family was generally pretty supportive. Um, my mom and dad, they were, they were accepting of me, but they were very cautious as well. Um, they kind of knew that this was just another part of the psychiatric health issues that I was already having. And so they're, they were reasonably um, worried about it. So they decided that they would try to go along with like my preferred name and such but they also wanted to have a second opinion from the professionals. So they started sending me to the psychologist. And was this a psychologist that was known to your family or did you talk to your family pediatrician first? How did you come to be introduced to this person? Well, I'm not sure because my, my mom and dad were the ones who kind of went through the process. But uh, a few days after I came up to them was when I started going to therapy. And it was through my healthcare provider. And when you say you came out, did you tell them that you felt that you were actually male? I wrote them a letter and in it, I just said that I wanted to, to be their son and not their daughter and like my preferred name and identity and that I just hoped that they would accept me. Did you feel uncomfortable in your own body? Was it that you just didn't feel like as a girl you were pretty and boys were making fun of you? Was there any, or was it just a combination of all those things that a lot of adolescent girls experience um, that, that led you to believe that you would be more comfortable being a male? Um, I mean, a lot of it was just kind of normal adolescent distress that 
I was struggling to cope with and probably would have just grown out of. Um, but I also began puberty at a pretty young age. I was nine years old going into my fourth grade year when my breasts started to become visibly developed. And uh, so I was kind of just thrust into development towards adulthood much earlier than I had expected. And uh, the reactions that I was getting from people like uh, my mom telling me like, you need to wear a bra like in front of like my friends and uh, and like older siblings. And then my older siblings reaction like, oh my gosh, she's she's that old. Isn't she a little bit young for that? Or like sometimes I would even have like, uh, like adults outside of my family or my peers making comments on my body. And not all of it was out of malicious intent. Not even most of it was, but it all just kind of served to make me more and more conscious of my developing body. How many years ago would this have been then? This was when I was like 12 going 13. So 2017, um, like five or more years ago. You mentioned that you had some mental health issues. Were you anxious or was it depression or some combination of those things? Well, I haven't been formally diagnosed with depression until um, I was a sophomore in high school, but I had some symptoms. Um, I was previously diagnosed with ADHD, but I don't think that was correct. I think that I was actually on the spectrum that I was misdiagnosed and that most of my ADHD symptoms just came from being on the internet or using technology all the time. I feel like my autistic symptoms were a large part of what pushed me towards transition and that I kind of tend to hyper-focus, to hyper-fixate on, on certain things and on certain, certain subjects. And I'm somebody who's very goal-oriented. Right. And the more I learned about transition, the more it just kind of personally resonated with me. And like to me, I finally found the source of my distress and how to resolve it. And so I became very determined to do so. And it was the only option that I really had been given by my doctors, uh, by the research that I had done on it um, online, uh, which included uh, like information from official medical resources and providers and from within the trans community. Well, then who was the first person or persons who mentioned transition to you? Did this happen at school? Yeah, so I, I never actually learned about it in school. I learned about the idea of transitioning and that gender and sex were two separate things that just because I was born a biological female, that doesn't necessarily mean that I have to live as one from the internet. You've noted that your parents were lied to and that they actually felt coerced into starting the hormones and then eventually giving you surgery um, by this team of specialists that you were seeing. and. I, we, we hear this phrase a lot now, and in fact, it's in your excellent Edify video, would you rather have a dead daughter or a living son? But then you've also said you weren't really suicidal until after you started taking all of these hormones. Can you just unpack that a little bit uh, for our audience? The further time went on with me being in therapy, the more frustrated I was getting because my psychologist just wasn't really addressing the distress that I was dealing with around my body, my dysphoria, and even like what it was going on at home or at school for me. And I even told my parents, like, I'm not satisfied with this. Like nothing is happening. And I'm just, things are just kind of stagnant. And so I was referred to, I believe I was referred to a gender specialist then. 
um, who I think officially diagnosed me with gender dysphoria. And uh, I started telling my parents, like, I really want to transition. I want to go on to the next steps. I, I don't want to just be changing my name and changing the way that I act. I want to actually become a boy. And I want my body to reflect that. Mm -hmm. And the more I pushed, the more concerned I got because I was only a kid. This was a huge undertaking for somebody my age. I was just going into my eighth grade year. And so they went to my doctors, my therapists, my psychologists, asking why, why I was pushing for this so much, why it couldn't just wait, and what the chances were that this could harm me or that I could regret it. And my doctors just kind of push all their concerns aside, telling them that, like, well, you know it's not normal for a kid to be pushing for this, right? There's a reason why she wants this so bad. And the reason is, this is who she truly is. And this is going to be a beneficial treatment. It's the only option, really, because it's more likely that she's going to regret going through puberty and developing all the secondary sex characteristics that are making her dysphoric. They didn't necessarily say outright that it was going to be the outcome, but they told them that they only had two options. Either I wouldn't transition and would be at risk of suicide, or that I would transition and I would become a happy, whole son, that I would be my true self. This is during an appointment that my, my mom and dad had just between them and the doctors, and it wasn't with, it was without me. So I wasn't really there to like uh, push back on this. And if I did hear this, then who knows what, what I would have said or thought or believed. I mean, that's already awful for them to hear as parents. I can't imagine how I would have felt if I would have believed that, but it wasn't true. We're gonna take a little commercial break here. And I want to let listeners know that in addition to the video we did with you about your personal story, Edify also produced a fully animated video that details the story of a young girl who transitioned as a minor. And her story is actually, Chloe, quite similar to yours. So we're going to link to both videos in the show notes below so that you listeners can watch them. And they are incredibly powerful, especially when you watch them together. So, Chloe, let's go back to something you said earlier. You mentioned you're on the autism spectrum. And there was a British survey done uh, a, a few years ago that said that those who are experiencing gender dysphoria especially girls, are three to six times more likely to be on the autism spectrum, if not outright autistic. Have you done a little more, uh, you know, reading into this? And, and do you have any reflections on that particular statistic? Does it surprise you? No, I mean, it's not really surprising to me because, like I said, um, being on the spectrum is a big part of what propelled me towards this path. Like my tendency to fixate on things and to be to focus on a goal right. and to be in very very uh, seemingly logical almost black and white thinking those are all pretty common patterns of behavior amongst people who are autistic and you'll see it in these populations as well like these people are many people who identify as trans or are gender dysphoric are very attracted and emotionally um, they cling to this they cling to this idea 
a lot of these kids struggle socially and don't really feel like they have much in the way of a community around them in real life. And so they kind of tend to to gravitate towards communities that are online. Um, and that's kind of how it started for me, actually. It started for me, um, my first exposure to gender ideology was within communities that were around like uh, anime and manga and cartoons and video games that I watched or played. And a lot of the members in those communities had been diagnosed with like ADHD or autism. And I think the link is like not only do they struggle socially in real life and kind of struggle to like find friends and such at school or at work or otherwise. They also tend to have like like uh like hyperfixate on special interests and that often includes things like like video games and art. What websites are the worst? Like the social media ones. Like if you had a daughter and you were like, okay, this is blocked in my house, what what would those particular sites be? Oh my gosh. Instagram is it's awful for so many reasons. Like I've seen so much like sexual grooming on there. There's even like pages that are dedicated to like like pictures of like suspiciously like young looking girls in swimsuits and such. Yeah. It's like there's like whole whole hashtags just filled with content like that on there. Um, and Twitter is kind of the same, but like the the average user like the average age of the user base on there is a lot older. Instagram kind of has that appeal to kids just because like it's more image oriented, like more tactile. There's a lot of like unrealistic images of women on there who've had like a, like either they edit their photos or they're wearing a lot of makeup or they've got like plastic surgery. And that's kind of what made my body image uh, worsen a little bit. I mean, I know hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But is there something that maybe your mom or your dad or someone could have said to you, like, you're going through a phase, Chloe, you're not a boy, you know, would, or would that have just made you dig your heels in more? Yeah, I mean, when people said stuff like that, it kind of just pushed me further into it because I was, I was very determined and it made me want to prove them wrong. So pushing back in that way, I feel like can be pretty, uh, pretty dangerous. But I mean, when it's your own kid and when they're still under the age of 18, you still have quite a bit of power over them. So I think that depending on wh where, the where the influence is coming from, you should either like take their phone away or restrict their internet access. Um, and once they're ready to start using it again, to monitor them. And I mean, ideally, I don't think that kids should be using things like social media up until they're about like 15, maybe 16 or 17. Um, but if it's from school, then I think it's best to either uh, move schools or start homeschooling, which I know isn't a very easy choice, especially because like a lot of parents nowadays are very, they're already swamped with work. It's just important to be as involved as possible in your kid's life, to ask them every day what they learned at school, like what they're doing with their, with their peers and to bond with them, to do things with them and to let them know that you love them, that if they're feeling this way about their body, the issue is not their body. It's just the way that they feel about it. And there's nothing that they have to change about themselves. What they have to change is the well, that's way that a, they That's feel, a very good, I like that. that. They feel, the way that they, they cope with their feelings around it. And to encourage them to, to build their hobbies, to, to stay healthy, to 
be involved at school in the community. Mary Rice Hassan, who is an expert on um, this particular area as well. She's done a couple of Edify videos with us in an interview, and she mentioned that there was a family she was working with where they moved uh, several states away to get their daughter away from, it was a peer group at school in this case, that was influencing her to believe she wanted to transition. And so they moved several, now, not as you point out, not every family can do that, but that turned out to be the best decision they ever made uh, really to save their daughter from this. So I'm glad to hear that. Um, well, many Americans, Chloe, they see this rapid spread of transgenderism, rather, and they want to keep people out of harm's way. They don't like what they see going on. But really, you talk to the average person, they don't know what to do. The best thing to do is to be informative, to let people within your community, within your family, your friends, to let them know what is going on at children's hospitals, in schools, and within these institutions with these corporations, what they are trying to push on children and vulnerable young adults. Right. Um, and to spread the word of stories like mine, of people who have been harmed by these practices. Because not many people know about what is going on. They either turn a blind eye to it, or they're told that it's either not happening, or they assume that, well, if this is happening to kids, then it must be under intense scrutiny. and that there is proper evaluation done beforehand because there's not, there absolutely isn't. There was an interesting article I just saw this morning um, by a neuropsychologist who says the existence of just one detransitioner suggests that an individual is not offered correct treatment for their condition by the doctors charged with their care. It is a clear case where the medical profession caused harm and we are ethically bound to learn and widely disseminate the lessons from even one case. Should be pretty alarming. I mean, you would think that even if it just were one patient, that a doctor would take note of the case and study it to make sure that it never happens again, right? But no, we continue to treat transition as very much a one-size-fits-all treatment for all these patients. I mean, really, I think that this practice of needlessly mutilating and sterilizing these mentally ill adults and children. It's gonna go down pretty quickly. I'd, I'd give it maybe like less than half a decade to a decade, if even that. Part of how it's going to be torn down is through these lawsuits that are popping up. It's going to sort of de-incentivize these doctors from doing these treatments, taking away their, their funding in doing this, but also sort of shaming them into just recognizing like the damage that they're doing to their patients. Yeah, I mean, it's totally medical malpractice. Here in California, following any protocol that isn't just endlessly affirming your patient and what they want, putting what they want over what they need, that could be considered conversion therapy. So it's pretty much illegal not to affirm a patient here. And like even within like the, uh, the medical institutions, this is just the protocol that doctors are expected to follow for their patients. That's not to deny though that a lot of these doctors do this out of, out of profit or out of, a, out of a, an ideological motive. Well, there, people because are making a lot, of, a lot of money off of this, that, that's for sure. And um, there's, you know, it's interesting just kind of going back, doing a little research, there, there's, um, there's some comparisons to when they were doing lobotomies on people 
who had epilepsy. I don't, you know, you're obviously way too young to remember that, but that was like, you know, it was human experimentation. And that's what this is. It's human experimentation. And they didn't have any, I mean, to do something that serious to a human being, um, you know, it, and with no basis, with no basis, no basis, no in basis. fact, no studies, really, it's a not even surgical, animal studies. Yes, it's a surgical physical treatment for a psychiatric condition. Exactly. And it's taking a sledgehammer to uh, an ant, you know, to something that's a really small issue. I mean, comparatively, right? So, well, you know, uh, Dr. Rachel Levine, who was a transgender woman who works for the Department of Health and Human Services, um, she has stated that clinics are proceeding carefully and no American children are receiving drugs or hormones for gender dysphoria who shouldn't be receiving them. How do you respond to that? I wish it were the truth. I really do. But I've, I've met far too many people who regret this and either have detransitioned or are pretty much stuck in transition and have to take medication for the rest of their life because their bodies are no longer capable of producing their own sex hormones and functioning on their own without any, any intervention. Right. So you just can't flip a switch and go back right. to being how you were. It's, yeah. It's not that easy. Once you, once you start, it's nearly impossible to go back oh. socially, medically, physically, in just about every way. Well, you've now filed a lawsuit against the hospital and the medical uh, group that gave you those gender transitioning treatments when you were a minor. Can you tell us a little bit about that? I know you may not be able to give us all the details at this point in the litigation, um, but I understand that this is the first lawsuit of its kind. That I know of. Um, there's been a few other people who transitioned who have filed lawsuits against their providers, but I think as far as I know, I'm the first case in the US of a child who has transitioned filing a lawsuit against my providers. And um, my motivations in doing so were that um, my, my doctors, they have failed to give me appropriate care um, before, during, and even after the process of me transition med transitioning medically. They harmed you. Yes, they harmed me. They harmed you irreversibly. And these treatments were fraudulent. They lied to me and my mom and my dad and my whole family. Mm -hmm. And I demand that they give me the appropriate treatment after what they did to me. Right. I don't want any other doctor to do this to, to, do this to any other child ever again. And I hope that this will be a precedent case for other people who have been harmed by these treatments to be able to get justice as well. I hope so too. And you're very, you're really courageous to go forward with it. I'm, I, it's, it's incredibly impressive. It really is. Um, well, let's, let's end on a kind of light note, if we could find one in all of this conversation. But when Anheuser-Busch partnered with Dylan Mulvaney, you had a terrific response. You said, just be a beverage company. It's really not that profound. And do you think that really helped? I mean, did that entire debacle help people suffering from gender dysphoria? No, not at all. It was, uh, if anything, it seems more like an attempt to to profit off these people. But even then, it was pretty unsuccessful. They lost uh, quite a bit of their, their stocks and income just from that one move. And even Dylan Mulvaney recently made a, a video talking about how after he reached out after the whole, I guess you could say it was a fiasco, they gave him no response. 
So in the end, it really served to help nobody. And it, make, it really makes you question why these companies do this, why they push this, even though they're doing so at a loss. Were you surprised by sort of the average person backlash that their stock plummeted and they couldn't, they couldn't literally give the stuff away? They were trying to give it away at local liquor stores and people literally wouldn't even take it for free. And um, it seems like there's sort of just kind of like an every person rising up now and people say, no, this is, this is now insanity and we're not going to be part of this anymore. It's really impressive just to see how successfully people are boycotting not only Bud Light, but also Target. Both these companies are losing sales like crazy because of what they're doing. And, you know, and people aren't making, you know, there's not a big organization or, you know, people are just kind of quietly saying to themselves, I'm not doing that. I don't want, I don't want my kids to see that. I don't want anything to do with this kind of stuff. And they're just kind of voting with their pocketbooks. And um, I think finally companies are waking up saying, oh, wait, maybe everybody is not on board for all of this. And we don't have to have a rainbow logo all through the month of June and be shoving this in people's faces all the time. It is hopeful. But at the same time, these companies aren't necessarily doing it like in the mindset that they will receive like raised profits or support from customers because a lot of it is kind of like a DEI thing in that they're being required to do this. Right. Or else they'll, they'll lose their funding. Chloe, just to close, uh, do you just quickly, uh, do you have any particular resources that you recommend for people um, who are looking uh, to detransition or who just want more information on not starting transitioning to begin with? Some of the first resources I went to when I stopped transitioning were uh, a, uh, a nonprofit by the name of Genspect. And uh, I went to the detrans community as well, which was uh, for me that was on the, uh, the official r slash detrans subreddit and uh, private server they had. But a lot of those can, that, a lot of that community is also. I feel like it's a good starting place, but detransition isn't forever. And even as like you start to hear more of these stories come out and, you, and as you start to interact with more people who have, who have been in the same situation, there is still more to life afterward. Well, well, Chloe, we certainly wish you the best, not only with, you know, as you continue to grapple with some of these health issues, and the psychological issues, but also with your lawsuit. And again, thank you for your incredible courage and in coming forward and doing this. You are, you're, you're blazing a trail. And I think you're speaking for a lot of very, very wounded uh, women and men who thought they were doing the right thing and for their families and for agonizing parents. So uh, thank you. We wish you all the best going forward. And uh, we're so grateful that you could spend this time with us at Edify. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To make it easier for you to listen to future Edify podcast episodes, please make sure you subscribe over at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thank you.